0: For joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers. To discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on SpeechTherapyPD.com, available for .1 ASHA CEUs.
1: We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word KEYS. Visit SpeechTherapyPD.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys to a Right Hemisphere Stroke Journey. I am Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. As a reminder, if you are joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, Be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says Complete Course, before the end of the day today on your SpeechTherapyPD.com account. We encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer at the end of the episode. And here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Simon Barton is the author of two books, Not So Green as Cabbage Looking and Bad Rhymes, No Reason, and receives royalties from the sale of the books. He will receive an honorarium for his appearance from SpeechTherapyPD.com. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Sarah Barton will receive an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for her appearance. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. And here are our learning objectives for today. One, describe challenges following a right hemisphere stroke and explain why right hemisphere stroke is considered a hidden diagnosis. Two, describe challenges to care partners of a person recovering from a right hemisphere stroke. Three, discuss right hemisphere post-stroke survivor journey, ongoing challenges and supports. And now we welcome our guests today, Simon and Sarah Barton. Simon was born in Teddington, Greater London in 1960. He studied and practiced design mechanical B. manufacturing engineering. He is a chartered engineer and a member of the Institute of Mechanical Engineers. He married his high school sweetheart, Sarah Hannock, and they had three children. He accepted a job offer and they moved to Raleigh, North Carolina in 1994. Following a right hemisphere stroke in 2013, Simon found the mathematics associated with his previous job too difficult, and he sought early retirement disability in 2015. He has since reinvented himself as a published author of two books, Not So Green As Cabbage Looking in 2019 and Bad Rhymes No Reason in 2022. Sarah was born in Balham, Greater London in 1960. And following a period of being a stay at home mother to her children, she returned to the airline industry, which she served for over 40 years. Sarah and Simon, we are so happy and honored to have you on Keys for SLPs to discuss your journey of recovery from right hemisphere stroke. Well,
2: hello. Hello. We're very happy to be here.
1: Well, thank you for being here. We really, truly appreciate it. So we first met in November of 2023. At Asha, and where I heard you speak, and had the opportunity to talk to you a little bit afterwards. And I really just am so honored that you agreed to speak with us today. So, Simon, we talked before, had a great conversation back about a month ago. And you said, you know, that we have the disclosures, but then you said you had some disclaimers, and you wanted to say what those disclaimers were. Uh, before we got started. So can you tell us about your disclaimers?
3: Sure. Basically, when I do a presentation publicly or whatever, I like to come out with a few disclaimers. I like to get my apologies done in advance of anything because I'm prone to offending people very easily. If you're easily offended, you need to leave now, basically is what I say. So that's the first disclaimer. An SLP told me when I was recuperating in a rehab hospital after my ICU stint, And SLP said, Simon, you've got to be very, very careful because it's likely that you've lost all your filters. So the first disclaimer, therefore, is that I have a medical excuse to be rude. And so I tend to flaunt that terribly because I didn't have many filters to begin with, to be honest.
1: All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. And can you tell us why you decided to join us today?
3: Well, it's a bit of giving back. It's like when I was there at Asha. You know, I was invited to speak at the Asha conference, which was a fabulous opportunity for me to be able to talk to SLPs, particularly because the SLP community for me have been instrumental, at least, to helping me get through this journey with the least amount of damage cognitively, and whilst physically I still struggle quite badly, at least. My mindset and my mental health, I feel very good and very happy to the extent that most of the presentations that I do, um, I actually recommend that everybody has a stroke, including all the SLPs that are innocently sl- sitting there listening to it. That if I do my job right with my story of my journey, I would like to think I have them leaving the room thinking, I've got to get me one of them strokes. <laughs> That was my best attempt at an American accent, which was obviously pretty
1: good. Uh, It it was a very good attempt at that. Well, no, no, I don't think anyone is wishing to have a stroke, but I really appreciate that sentiment and we'll see. I think I might be one of those people today. Now, I didn't see your full presentation at ASHA because I was working our booth. I only caught the last few minutes, but at that time, someone twisted Sarah's arm to say a few words and I was so impressed with with Sarah's journey as well that I asked you both to come. So again, really appreciate both of you being here. All right. So um you also had something that I appreciated that was also a little humorous. Before we get started, can you tell us what you think about the term SLP? Well yes,
3: again when I talk to SLPs, I, I, I open up by saying I've never understood the reason why you know, in hot rehab hospital, I had a physical therapist and I had an occupational therapist, PT and OT, respectively. And then I had an SLP, a uh, speech language pathologist. And I've never liked the word pathologist because pathologist to me makes me think of crime scenes and dead bodies. And then I go into some diatribe about, you know, the, difference, the the actual technical term, the difference between a therapist and a pathologist. And then I end up by saying, whether you think of yourselves as therapists or pathologists, it's up to you. But from now on, I will just regard you as super lovely people, SLP.
1: Well, I love that. And I, I would rather consider myself a super lovely person, I think, than an SLP. It's funny, Simon, because I have been one of those people that really has stuck to the term speech-language pathologist. But when I heard it from your perspective I really do think speech therapist is a more appropriate term. So thank you for sharing that. You know, I heard other people's opinion of whether it should be therapist or pathologist, but when I heard it from you, it really resonated with me. So anyway, I will think of myself as a super lovely person slash speech therapist. All right. So you mentioned it a little bit in your bio, but can you tell us about your background and describe what your life was like before your right hemisphere stroke?
3: I feel that we were on a roll. The family, when I say we, I'm talking about my lovely family. I have not only this beautiful lady, we've now been 40 years together as married couple.
1: Congratulations. Celebrated
3: our Ruby anniversary last June, which quite frankly is a major feat when I think what she's been through, particularly the last 10 years. And you know, my business was going like crazy. We were doing well. Our three kids were all grown up and moving on doing their own things, which was nice. In fact, the week of my stroke, that weekend beforehand, my eldest son was getting married and the reception was at my house. And in fact, I'd been working on the the yard area, you know, the big tent and nice sort of waterfall and all sorts of nice little things around for the the guests to enjoy while they were there the night before I had my stroke. And I think that probably didn't help matters because I was a bit physically drained. But anyway. So I missed the whole bloody thing because I was in hospital, um, although an ambulance did take me in nicely. They broke all the rules to get me there. I actually attended the wedding horizontally.
1: Wow. Wow. You were determined. So life
3: was good. In a- long answer to your question. But life, I would say, was really, really good. And then this thing happened.
1: OK. And then t- tell us a little bit about your business.
3: Well, you know, we were a design engineering company serving the manufacturing industries of machine tools, mainly. And it wasn't like it was, you know, lots of widgets, you know, small sales. They were usually big project sales, you know, one or two a year of anywhere between as little as $100,000 to as much as a couple of million bucks. So um, quite big, heavy design and professional engineering people that I had to have. And they were doing very well, actually, when I was in hospital and going through my rehab journey. And then I made the fatal mistake. A year later, and this is, I think, part of the right brain issue of thinking that I could get back to work and and start all over again and, and then run the business like I was doing it before and started making decisions that my key employees particularly said, you don't want to do that, Simon, particularly in the areas of investment, research and development, things that cost money. And as a result of those stupid decisions I made, because I was always right, I was dogmatic in that respect. We filed for bankruptcy the year after, literally closed the company down, my failings, my inability to listen to other people's opinions and advice and so forth.
1: Which was really caused by the stroke.
3: Yes, I'd like to say that. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Well, I am sorry that that happened, but as we will talk later, you have found a lot of resilience in your recovery. So we really appreciate you sharing that. Okay. So, Tell us about your hospital course and the symptoms after your stroke.
3: I'd like to pass that over to to the boss here, to my right, because I remember when I was actually doing my ASHA presentation, Sarah came up to me afterwards and said, you were a lot longer in hospital than you said you were. And I couldn't necessarily remember. So um, she was the one that was coming out every day to see me. I was in ICU. For 10 days. For 10 10 days. 10
2: days in ICU. And at which point, one of the doctors told me that he would probably only be a cabbage when he came out.
1: One of the doctors told you that in ICU? Yeah.
2: yeah. So I was, I was very distraught and trying to prepare because we had this wedding coming up and we were only 52. It was like, this shouldn't happen to us. You know, we're too young for this. I stayed in ICU and, I, and then he was transferred to a, a rehab unit in Raleigh, which fortunately for us is one of the best ones in the area. And so he went there and he was there for three, just over three months with therapy every day. And he was not very good at it. He was depressed. He wouldn't talk. He didn't want to eat. He looked 30 years older than he looks now. And he went from being 52 to like 82, just overnight, virtually. And I mean, he was in a wheelchair. He couldn't walk, couldn't do anything, basically and he became very very depressed so he finally came out of hospital after the the rehab after about three months and uh, during which time we had had to try we had a two regular two-story typical house and we had to try and we didn't have a shower or anything downstairs and so we had to try and do the best we could with reorganizing the house which we never did get the shower downstairs but we did have another toilet put in and he had to be wheelchair to the toilet and then at night to go to bed and to have a shower. My daughter was living with me at the time because she was staying with me and my son was around at the time, which he's not now. So they used to help us, help me get him up the stairs every night. So every night, the three of us were getting him up the stairs, getting him into the shower and, you know, just getting. And I had to get up in the night, every night to take him to the bathroom and. The meantime, I was still trying to go to work. So it was very stressful for all of us, all of us.
1: We didn't know anything about strokes much. You didn't know, did you know anyone who had a stroke before this? Not then, no.
2: no. You no. Know, we only knew old people.
3: In other words, Winston Churchill, for example, is our most famous statesman <laughs> from the UK. We know that he died of a stroke, you
2: know. Mostly happened to older people. Exactly. So usually people. In but the- he was 90-something when he had his last stroke is. killed him but now we know lots of young people that have had strokes because we're active in the stroke community. So we do know it happens to lots of young people.
1: Not having known anyone besides Winston, that it must have just been a shock.
2: Mm. It was a huge shock Mm. to all of us. Yeah.
1: You are walking now and you use a scooter for long distances. Is that correct?
3: No, I walk as far as I need to walk. we went flying in we went to France for my sister's 60th birthday party in skiing holiday, in the Alps. And I was happy walking right across the airport to get on the planes and so forth. So it's not the end of the world. I don't walk well. You would say, look at that cripple walking across over there. But you know, it's not like I walk like Sarah walks or you walk. I get from A to B, ugly, but I do it. So I'm I'm happy with that. And I walk every morning too. part of my exercise
1: routine that I do every day. That's wonderful. When did you start to be able to walk on your own without the wheelchair?
2: That took about, I would say, another three months with the help of an absolutely amazing physical therapist who mainly deals with people with brain injuries. So she was very, very used to dealing with Simon's condition. And in fact, she everyone recommended that we go to her after the hospital. And she was amazing. And she got him up and he didn't want to do it. But because he was still very depressed at this point, he couldn't move his face to the right. He would always look left, And he was miserable most of the time, but she forced him to get up and walk. And he did. And the first day we were all in tears when he actually started to walk, every one of us. My daughter was there. And so we were just, you know, crying with joy that he could actually now walk just a little bit and gradually, he got better and better.
1: Oh, well, thank goodness. Thank goodness you had her and also you had the determination uh, to get to where you are now.
2: Yeah, the therapists were really, really wonderful, all of us. Yes.
3: In rehab hospital, they, they at least taught me to be able to stand or at least use my strength to be able to get up from a sitting position. And then Sarah was trained by the PT as to how to manhandle me from the chair to a sofa or a chair to the bed or the bed to the chair back to the to the to the toilet and so forth so it was literally physically getting me from one object to another up until that point until I could actually walk for myself Yeah,
2: which was about three to four months
3: long answer to your question well
1: we, we should also say thank goodness for Sarah as well being by your side and helping you through all this
3: Bloody
1: right, yeah. So you said you were, prior to this, to, during the three or four months post, you were depressed. When do you feel like that depression, you know, lifted? Was it, you know, I, I imagine it was probably gradual.
2: Because after the business failed, it was a good couple of years till he even got over there. And it was only really when he started to write his first book that there was a change. Because he had purpose again. Before that, he used to sit in front of the TV all day watching nothing, you know as we all do he suddenly started to have a purpose in life and he started working on his book and then that really really
3: helped well much of what i talk about when i'm doing these presentations is the importance of being happy as a goal my goals when i left rehab hospital was a sort of a challenge i guess it's the sort of the you know, the character that i was beforehand you know developing new technologies patenting them and, uh, and having a fairly good successful career at that point, you know, of, of going over and above what, what the average engineering person was doing. Um, and so when somebody says, Simon, it's going to be a very long recovery, It'll be a long time before you can walk again, forget ever playing tennis again, forget ever playing your guitar or all these things that I thought i golf and so forth. So to me, that was just a challenge. When I left the hospital, and I was quite determined that I would be playing tennis, playing my guitar, and doing everything that I was going back to work, doing all the things that I was doing before I had my stroke. Everything was going to be back to normal.
2: And, then it wasn't.
3: and so I set these ridiculous goals that people that have had a you know have a brain injury shouldn't be setting goals for themselves, in my opinion, because I didn't know any better. As Sarah said, we I've never had a stroke before. We've never experienced anything like this before. What do I know about? how the brain supposedly recovers. Um, And, you know, I literally, um, and i point this out in the presentations, the word recovery, if you actually look it up in, for example, the Oxford English Dictionary, means regaining something back or getting something back that you've lost, is the technical meaning, and in medical terms, back to a normal state of health. Um, So when somebody talks about recovery, I think, well, I'm going to be back. You, you and, the, and the thing that you learn or that I've learned, it's taken me 10 years to learn it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't recover from stroke. You never, you will never get back what you've gone back before, everything anyway. So um, you,
1: you were so really, so that, a, oh, go ahead.
3: So, so back, so therefore I re, through my writing, I, I reset my goal as in, well, what is it that makes me happy? And being the egotistical son of a bitch that I am, um, I took the view that, well, you know, I, I, I like the sense of achievement. Somebody pat me on the back saying, good job, Simon, made me really happy. So when I wrote a little essay or a little poem or something, I said, what do you think of this? And they said, Simon, that was really good. Good job. Then that made me happy. So I thought I'd write some more. And then when I, somebody says, like <clears throat> this lady, Jamila Minga, the Duke professor that I became close with, uh, and she said, Simon, I'd like you to come and speak to my class. And I spoke to a class of uh, you know junior, young, wannabe SLPs, and they all gave me a round of applause at the end. And Jamila afterwards then turns around and said, Simon, that was really good, well done. You know, little tear welled in my eye. I thought, yeah, I did well. And it made me happy. And then that just made me want to write more, talk more, and do other things more. Um, and so I found myself accidentally if you like reinventing myself um and as you read in this last book i wrote a poem called reinvention and that's what it that's what i think that we as stroke survivors all go through and that's what i'd like to try to convey um to my audiences whether it be of full of stroke survivors or slps to relate to other stroke survivors is is forget this word recovery. It's not a recovery journey. There's it's a journey of discovery, not recovery. You know, we're learning how to be ourselves. It's like being reborn, you know. Except obviously you have some disabilities. You know, we have to learn how to walk again, we have to learn how to talk again in, in the case of people with aphasia and so forth. Um uh, we have to learn how to be ourselves again, and maybe the path that we had when we were fit and young and so isn't available to us, then you have to reinvent a new path. And um, and basically that's what I've done for me, which has made me as happy as I am now. And I'm very content with where I am now, which is why I say everybody should have a stroke. because You'll feel a lot better for it.
1: Well, your, your journey of uh, discovery and reinvention, reinvention is so inspirational. How many years after your stroke did you get to that, Do you feel like you got to that point?
3: It was gradual. It was a long time. Fortunately, one of my first SLPs said, Simon, you need to keep a journal. Start writing in a journal. Um, and she also said, If any time you want to talk about something that you're struggling with for our next session, write a little essay. Let's read, let me read it, and we'll talk about it when you get back. Any excuse to write things down, do it. Well, again, as I, I as was said at the beginning, you know, I struggled with my filters, so I offended a lot of people, therapists particularly, physical therapists, occupational therapists. In fact, the whole last book started because of a, a lousy comment I made to my occupational therapist when I called her a cow, um, because she made me do an exercise that was I was struggling with, and she, when she told me to do another ten reps, I just said, "Oh, you cow." And, and, then and cow
1: of, is one of those words that there are some little nuances between um, American English and Great right. Britain well, exactly, English. So yeah, tell so tell us about the difference between your cow and my cow.
3: Well, a cow to an English man is a term of endearment. I mean, my, she's my favorite cow right here. <laughs> so if I if I call you a cow, it, it actually means that I quite like you, really, uh, Mary Beth. Okay. Of course, I tried that on with the occupation woman. She said, "What did you call me?" I said, a cow. And, and then immediately, as fast as I could, I said, but it means that I like you honestly. And then all the other therapists in the room that heard this conversation got on her side and said that we're not over here. We don't say that sort of thing to each other over here. No, 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 no. So then I wrote this poem of apology, um, which basically ends up with me being right all along that, that it is a term of interment. Because a cow gives much of herself in terms of you know what a cow gives milk and all
2: that sort of stuff, but anyway,
1: ah, now do you think you would have made that mistake or or said that prior to the stroke? Would you have called an an American female a cow?
3: yes, oh yes, well, I mean, um, as I' write in my book, um I made mistakes the whole way through George Bernard Shaw, a uh, famous famous playwright, um, once said that England and America are separated by a common language, <laughs> which is absolutely true. Um, when I first came, as an example, since I told you I have no filters, um, as an example, my very first lady secretary that I employed when I came over here, After I used to do all my engineering drawings with a pencil, um, I'd, I'd made a mistake. I went up to her and I said, um, Catherine, do you have a, do you have a rubber? She said, I beg your pardon. I said, Do you have a rubber? I said, What do you take me for? I said, You're my secretary. Do you have a rubber? And it, t- it took that long to realize that what I was talking about was what you call an eraser.
1: And it went to, it had to go from bad to worse before you got there.
3: Yes. And but it, but it, 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 it took, as I put in the book, um, and literally, she was also the sort of. I used to write handwrite all my letters, and this is this in the days before we did everything ourselves on our laptops. So I'd handwrite my letters and give it to her, and then go out the door and she'd, she'd type them up and send them off in the mail and so forth. And this woman would once once said, Oh, and by the way, Simon, I have corrected all your spelling mistakes. Well, of course, that made her an absolute first-class cow. And and but that's but I didn't say it out loud because I didn't really like her. <laughs> there you are right <laughs> so yeah. yes um so no no uh, the, uh, the answer to your long again a long answer to you but I, this is the other thing about stroke is i tend to deviate, deviate and waffle a bit well sorry for that um but again, again answering your question Awesome. What, was
1: that? what was the um, question? Was, that? was the question? I think the the last one was the uh. Well, it was it would was, my question was Would you have made Would you have said those same things? Like, would you have called someone a cow be like before in twenty twelve? Would you have called an American female a cow? Only only English ones. Only English. So you would you would have known the distinct. You had that distinction.
3: Yeah. 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 No, I I think if I was if I was a if I if I
2: liked the lady, I probably would have done.
1: Um, well in England we
2: call each other cows. Women call women cows too. Okay, okay. So I call I could call my sister a silly cow. You silly Why cow. She would call me a silly cow. Because you <laughs> say something silly or whatever, you know? Yes,
1: yes. It's very
2: common in England. Everyone's a silly cow.
1: Okay. Okay. Um okay, so Simon, back to your what to your hospital course and, and your when you were in intensive care in the hospital and in, in rehab what was your biggest challenge as far as communication goes
3: understand, understand comprehension i think yeah probably comprehension I, I i couldn't i couldn't first of all as sarah said i couldn't actually look face to face at the person you know i was usually up there somewhere or yeah. there um and people would be directing things you know saying this is what you need to do or you and it would go in there and out yeah i i just couldn't couldn't absorb did, what yeah. was being said you didn't know
2: what was going on you just didn't understand anything did
3: you i was quite oblivious
2: just sit like that all the time and it was just sad
1: and just sit and stare and when um when did you start to feel like your comprehension was starting to improve
3: when i started writing um mm-hmm because I think that's the beauty of writing, um, is that our our, our brain just doesn't work as fast after a damage like I I had and others have had. Um, So you asking me a question, certainly in the early days, I couldn't process it and respond to it as well. When I look back in the failure of my business time, uh, when I tried to get back to work, I can look back now and think of all the things that my top execs were saying, Simon, you need to do this, you need to do that, or don't do this, or don't do that. They said it, but I, I just couldn't comprehend it. Sarah um, has said many things I, I know in the past, that, that it wasn't until a day or 24 hours later that I realised she was right. You know, I just couldn't. I I think comprehension was the biggest problem. Yeah.
0: But when I when I
3: sit down and type one letter at a time with my one good hand, and I sit back and look, I look at it and then reread the sentence and then make the re- corrections and so forth, as you do when you're writing, um, then it's then it's absorbing in.
1: Mm-hmm. So the interaction so say, with gradually
3: starting with writing, gradually from then on, the comprehension got better.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And the other thing I struggle with is group, group talk um so conferences and meetings I, I I couldn't get it out you know I, somebody would say something and and I would have something in my head and I wonder want to get it out I couldn't find the right time to be able to say it and by the time that I did we'd moved on to another subject that was really hard too
1: do you looking back do you wish you had waited to go back to work
3: no no doubt about it that they were doing a pretty yeah you know, the execs that were left in charge of the business when I was in hospital were doing a good job. The business was liquid. It was struggling a little bit. It needed a little bit of help, but um I think they would have done they they, they would have done okay without me, much better than than with me there, for sure.
1: And if and then if you had come, what what if you could do things over again? Um would you have waited like a another year or yeah, another six months? What what would you think?
3: I don't know. I don't know when there would have been a good time, to be honest. Um, um, and and uh, I suppose also the extent, because, you know, when I went and said I was going back, I decided I was going to go back every day. Um, now, appearing, uh, going every day is quite different to maybe appear, showing your face maybe once a week for a couple of hours just to check on things and, and contribute if you feel you could.
1: hmm hmm But when you went back you wanted to go back as you were the president exactly
3: yes and and everything
1: the the whole you know this presentation
3: i did at Asher was entitled him that person and me and they're three completely different characters in the one body um all surrounded by this stroke um him was the guy the what i coined the bloke before the stroke who i was before And then i talk about who he was, you know, my background and all that stuff. Then that person is this horrible person that was created immediately after the stroke, maybe one to two years after the stroke, um, who was bolshie, depressed, uh, angry all the time. until finally through my writing and achieving a, a little bit more happiness um and reinvention it ends up with b um so but that person is the guy that we're talking about um he couldn't listen to anything he um he was incapable of really performing to any competent level in my humble opinion um mm-hmm and as i say it's a, such a slow gradual process i couldn't say that oh, there it was right there and then at that moment it went from that person to me it wasn't a, it wasn't a, wasn't a eureka moment it was just a so slowly gradual right. through 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 the writing really and you yeah. know as you, you know, I don't know if you've written a book or whatever you know it's quite a long process and so um the whole writing bit was an evolution if you like creations.
1: That's wonderful. Good good advice to others who may be listening. So um, I think we talked before this podcast is designed for speech language pathologists. um, Super lovely
3: people.
1: Super lovely people who can listen and get um, continuing education units, but it is also available or will be available in the future on uh, podcast platforms. So there might be someone who is a right hemisphere stroke survivor who listens to this and um that's very good advice the writing is very good advice so thank you for for sharing that and and well thank you and and sarah do you agree with that evolution of um him that person and me yes
2: three distinct people and now that he's the new one he's much better she actually
3: loves me now she didn't before (laughs) It Something life. tells
1: me she loved you all along, but sometimes some days it's easier to love our yes. loved ones than others, right? Exactly. exactly.
2: There was a couple of years there where I could have cheaply strangled him, but he came back.
1: And and Simon, you said you have three children. Um, we didn't really talk about it ahead of time, but um, how would you say that they have evolved as you have evolved from? i
3: so I'm, ter- I'm terribly proud of them i we, we and my eldest the one that got married the, the week of my stroke um they they had their fourth my fourth grandchild last last the october. end of last october of last year so that that just brings me joy
1: well congratulations i'm very
3: proud of them all um they're they're each very very different from each other as well my daughter um runs a, a restaurant and is doing very well. And she's a Somalier, and you know I, I learn from her about wines every every time she comes around And basically, how little I know about wines. Um, my middle son is is the rover. He's he's the guy that I always wanted to be. You know, only recently he was in South Africa filming something for Netflix. Um, yes, and 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 now he's back in Kentucky in a bourbon bar having a good time doing that um he's a world traveler he likes to travel the world Mm.
1: well how exciting so your children are dual citizens
3: yes um well a a daughter daughter is yeah Hannah
2: the only one that is the two boys still haven't got their citizenship yet only because they're lazy
1: (laughs) they didn't want to fill out the forms Well, it it is an an extensive process. I I know that because I have a sister. It's easier just maybe maybe
3: they just fly into Mexico and walk across the border. That's probably the way to do it. <laughs>
1: um, but how was your it sounds like they are all thriving and, and that I can only imagine they were in their early 20s when this happened to their father and their family and really changed the dynamics of your family.
2: It did, it did change the dynamics of the family. Yeah. But Simon is always the one in charge. Telling everyone what to do and what we were going to do. And he was always having a holding a party about something, you know, let's have a party, you know, all that. that. And then that just disappeared. Mm. So he wasn't in charge anymore. I was. And it wasn't no. so much fun.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Not for me, anyway. <laughs>
1: a, a, a lot of changes. How about uh, relating to them, Simon, were, when you were that person? Um... No,
3: I was pushing them. I was pushing them away. I, again, I'm grateful to my whole family because they have had to put up with an awful lot with that person um, in those early years, for sure. That I, I dread to think what they were thinking uh, during that time. Uh, I mean, she, she said she could have strangled me. Um, I'm sure they. I, I'm sure they would have. They would have held me down while she did it.
1: But how wonderful that you have come to the point where you are now um with with the, your family dynamics and all your children and grandchildren so um thank you again that we hope that inspires other uh, right hemisphere stroke survivors um do you call yourself a survivor
3: I do although um a local charity that I support um refers to us as warriors
1: i've got the t-shirt on oh i love it i love it can you can you get up a little bit so we can see Oh my gosh, I love that. That's so cute. Okay. Uh, uh, well, I'll have to ask you afterwards how I can get one of those. Okay, we have a question from one of our participants. Um, w- were you a writer at all before your stroke?
3: No, I, 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 I think I have a good, I've had a good command of English and uh, I used to write a lot of technical papers. You know, whether it be a for a you know technology that I just developed an engineering technology and was presenting, I would write a technical paper that go to go to a conference. So I, I you know I could write business plans, you know, technical engineering stuff like that. Business stuff like that. But in terms of writing something that somebody might be interested in reading is a completely other different story. Um, but no, I and I'm really pleased that I I've enjoyed because you know, obviously, I know nothing about strokes, but I know a lot about what I've been through, and and I think I think some of the experience. You know, I like, I I think I have a sense of humor, and and being able to put a sense of humor in the whole thing has helped as well for sure. And being able to write with a sense of humor, I think, it's also helped.
1: Absolutely. So,
3: you know, I'm I'm learning as I'm going along.
1: Do you think? And, and again, we can't. We can't go back in time. But do you think if that, I almost said SLP, but I'm going to say, do you think if that speech therapist, that initial speech therapist, if do you think if she hadn't told you to write a journal, do you think you would have eventually become an author?
3: I don't know. Well, let's say uh, the amount of letters of apology that I was leading on to say, I don't think I actually said it before, which was actually at the start of that second book when I called this lady a cow. You know, because um, I, I wrote, you know, in fact, I talked about that same speech pathologist. I wrote her a letter of apology because we were in class one time, and she actually said, "Simon, I do like the way you say." It. I don't. Know. She asks us to read things and so on as we know in the group, Um, because uh, the group that I was associated with was an aphasia group. So there were people in that group that really were struggling with speech, and and despite the fact that mine was right brain, I was still part of this group, which was a great thing for me um um she we would take it in terms maybe to read a passage and and so i'd read and um this lady would say Simon, i love the way you speak i love the way you said for example like where you said grass well well that well that's fatal to say that to me because i said well do you know maura i've always thought you've had a lovely ass to which she said i beg your pardon so there's there's another letter of apology right there
1: sarah i can see you rolling your eyes right he is bad
2: (laughs) He is bad sometimes.
1: Oh, he hasn't but you, had, he has not even had a drink yet. <laughs> but do you think like what like if, do you think he would have ended up being an author if the SLP did, had not said, you know, keep a journal? Do you think he I would think, have I think it? he would have done because I think he would have got
2: there himself eventually. Eventually. Because okay. He couldn't he has to do something, you know, cuz he can't sit and do nothing. He did that for 2 years and that was awful. So, he had to do something. So, I think eventually, what it's, I mean, he can't play golf anymore. He can't play tennis anymore. All those kind of things were out the window. So, what is he going to do? He's not at work. So, he had to do something. So, I think writing would, he would have eventually got there. But I think that just spurred it along a little bit mm-hmm. With, mm-hmm. With, with the SLP saying that because he started him off earlier. Mm-hmm. But so, I don't know,
1: I don't know what he would have done otherwise. So, you're, um, it seems through that, through this journey, uh, your advice might be, to someone else who has a right uh, hemisphere stroke, find find something that you can do and do it. Yes,
2: find something you can
1: do.
0: Yes,
2: yes
3: you absolutely. can do it, yeah. Well, I think we need to find something, what, what, what is it that makes us happy? You know, um, as because again, I, I put this in the book, um, I recommend everybody gets these books, uh, but anyway, for sake of the last one, um, it took me ages to work out that what everybody was saying. I used to hate the fact that you know, other people could, could move physically quicker than I could. Um, and I would constantly be told, whether it be from SLPs or OTs or PTs, well, you've got to understand, Simon, everybody's stroke is different. I really hated that answer. I, couldn't, I could not accept it. It took me the whole of the first book to recognize that what they were saying all the time was right. Everybody's stroke is different. Everybody's journey is therefore going to be different. Um, my friend, Sean, who lives up the road, actually, he is the complete opposite to me. Uh, he wasn't going to get beaten by by this depression of not being able to. So he worked really, really hard, and he is now running. He is um, doing many of the things. He's playing a lot of golf. And he's constantly saying, do you, want, do you want to play golf, Simon? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And I'm very proud of him and very pleased for him. Um, so everybody's journey is going to be different. I think that's the first lesson is they've got to accept that that some people can you know get some blood brain cells to actually function and, and get the arm moving and the uh, the leg moving like they used to. It just didn't work out that way with me. So just because writing seemed to be okay with me doesn't mean to say it would be for everybody but find something that makes you happy i think that's the most important thing there's more to life than playing golf or playing tennis or um doing some of the things that you were doing before but i i have the time i didn't have before to at least sit at a laptop and and just type a letter at a time and and can concoct a piece so that when Sarah gets home in the evening, having worked a whole day, I can wave a piece of paper and say, look what I did today. And she said, very good, dear.
2: <laughs> well, they were very good.
3: After rolling her eyes. Buddy.
2: No, I didn't roll my eyes. No, they were good.
1: Well, and that that's good advice. Your advice to someone who's had a stroke is good advice to anyone. You know, find something that makes you happy. Put put your energy where it's going to make you happy. and And sometimes... Uh, we have to reinvent ourselves for different reasons. Um, but your story is is so inspirational. Um, Sarah, what do you think, like when you look back, um, so Simon said uh, comprehension was hardest for him initially and, and looking people um, in the eye. What do you think was most challenging um, for Simon? Well, I think the fact that he couldn't drive anymore. He had to be taken everywhere. You know he couldn't
2: walk. It was just awful. It was awful for everybody, for all our friends and relatives. It was just such a different person, such a different person. I mean, he couldn't even see properly. He had to go We went to found a wonderful eye doctor that actually allowed him to be able to drive again, and by having this intense eye therapy, neuro- neurological eye therapy brought back his sight, just little things like that, you know. And so he really well, couldn't do a very much at all. So the whole thing has just been a long, a long time, hasn't it? So now, now he can take care of himself mm. and he takes care of the dog too.
1: Well, when did you start driving again? That was, um, what was that?
2: About couple of years. two to three years. Yeah, two to three years. He, he went, they did a special, um, they did a special class for him and he they took a test and they said, he's fine, his car is adapted. So you know for one hand, one hand use. And he drives everywhere. I mean, he's driven up to Kentucky, in fact, on his own. I did a presentation at Indiana University, which is quite a drive from here. Um, and
3: um, but I still did it.
2: And that was a big thing though, wasn't that was it? A... The independence.
3: Oh, oh, it was huge. And the thing is, again, I didn't know anything about it until it's funny because and I want to just mention that this same guy, Sean, that I mentioned earlier, went to the same rehab hospital as me. And I was down in, in rehab. Going through some exercise with the PT, when this guy comes in who I'd never met before, this young man Sean. And I could not understand because this, this PT said, "Hello, Sean, how are you doing?" He, he'd had him a couple of years, a couple of months before me. Uh, he said, "How are you doing?" He said, "Why are you looking so happy?" And Sean, with a big smile on his face, "I can drive." And I'm there, sort of lying down on this mat, thinking, "What, what the hell? What's the big deal?" You know. Didn't understand why he was so happy about being able to drive. Didn't even occur to me of what that meant. No. And I, and I would go and I would go through exactly the same thing as he did, but I didn't know it at the time, of course.
2: No,
3: um, independence much, yeah. is a massive, massive, massive thing.
1: So important for us to hear you say that because anything we as SLPs or speech therapists can do to help people regain their independence is so important. Yeah, he can
2: do most things. I mean, he can cook. He, you can say, what can't you do? You can, you put, you, I mean, he puts his clothes on, he gets in the shower and he's you know, everything like that he does on his own. Well, he's not very good at cleaning though.
1: I don't think, does that have anything to do with the stroke, Sarah? No, because he couldn't do it before either.
2: The highlight
3: of my day, you get this right? And this is absolutely true. And I know that Sarah knows this deep down, but the highlight of my day is that I'm up very, very early doing my exercises, my walk. And Sarah, while she works, she doesn't actually leave the house until about eight o'clock. Um and I, I love the fact that I can actually do a little bit of washing up in the morning and what wipe the tops down of the kitchen and then take her in a cup of tea into her bed bedroom in, into the bedroom and just say, There you are, darling, a cup of tea for you. Good morning.
2: Which is
0: lovely.
3: Which which for me is fabulous as well. I mean, not 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 because I, I think she likes it, or it's the she fact does. that I feel that I'm contributing something to our um House. Just, just a little bit of a white cleanup of the kitchen and uh, and a cup of tea in the morning says I've done my bit, or a little bit, a little bit.
1: Yes. It's so important to feel like we are contributing and, and you're you're part of the team. When you those those are little signs that you and Sarah are part of a team, you're she helps you, you're helping her, versus many years where she was um, shouldering most of the responsibility. That's the truth.
2: He's just finished the taxes. Another thing that I can't do before the end of January is a record for me okay. ever. Yeah, that
1: that is yeah. impressive <laughs> I can't say the same thing in my house that it not it, it hasn't happened yet <laughs> so sarah what w- as the care partner and and wife and mother of your three children, um what was the most challenging you've mentioned a lot of things that were challenging, but looking back initially, what was the most challenging thing for you i think what what well apart from him. For me, what was hard was that we had to leave our house because
2: we, we had a bankruptcy. We had to move and sell our house, which had been our family home for 25 years. And to find something smaller, which I actually have to say that our little house now is very nice. It's small, isn't it? A single story. But I found that quite difficult, having to give up there. And the other thing was worrying about money all the time, because he'd always done that. I had just gone to work and raised the kids and taken them to all their, you know, sports and all whatever they do. I hadn't really worried about money like that, you know. And now I had to because I had to pay all the bills and, you know, I was in charge now. And I had never been in charge before, you know. That was hard too, just, just the financial stuff, which if you've never done it before, you know, it was hard. But um, now it's okay, you know. We have a system. We have a system. We have a good system. But that was challenging.
1: I'm sorry for that. But thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm sure there are care partners out here, out, out there who will hear that. And um, they might be, you know, in an earlier phase of this recovery. And And to hear how well you both are doing now is very inspirational. So thank you. All right. Oh, we have another question. Okay. So let me read it here. Sarah, in retrospect, what would you like to have been different in his medical services? I think we got wonderful care. I really, I really, I mean,
2: the, the therapists were all amazing. Even the doctor that called him a cabbage became a friend. <laughs> he was just, he was astounded, wasn't he? That was Luke's football guy. Mm-hmm. He was astounded. Yeah. And he was thrilled. He was thrilled. All the doctors have been amazing. You know, we, I really can't say, can you? No, because all your doctors now are amazing, too, aren't they? You're great doctors now.
1: Well, that is certainly a testament to um our doctors here, um, and you're you're in the Raleigh area. so um, yeah, you you do have a two good medical centers at least that I know of there. Oh, we've got a lot. yeah, plus the fact I had good insurance is also important. That does. makes a huge difference. Okay, well, as a reminder to our listeners, um if you would like to put your questions in the chat, uh, we can answer those questions now. Um, let's talk about uh, future plans. so Simon what are what are your future plans here?
3: well on, well, on book number 3 uh, which i which, which is going to be a, a it's a, it's a completely different you know before they were just plain memoirs this one's a novel.
1: Oh yes, 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 yes. Can you can you reveal a little bit of the plot, or do we have to wait? Because you you mentioned this to me, and I just love the plot.
3: Well, the plot is it's going to be a group because you know I've done a lot of stroke support groups, and and for example, um, one of the groups that I've made active with only met every two weeks on a Thursday, and we seem to get on so well that what happens with the Thursday that we're not doing anything, so we decided to start up a Grumpy Cripples Club. Uh, which basically meets at the pub. And we can have a few beers and have a good old laugh and then do it about how terrible we are. So, so the idea started really about that, about the Grumpy Cripples Club. So it's, it's, there, there are all these different personalities in this group, some with aphasia, some are left brain, some are right brain. But the, at the end of the day, there's going to be a love story with a right brain stroke guy falling in love with a left brain lady. <laughs> <laughs> and the match the matchmaker was an SLP, of course.
1: Lovely, I love that. Uh, just out of curiosity, you're in Raleigh, or you're you're in Wake Forest. Where does your uh, the, the, the the grump Where does the grumpy group meet?
3: Somewhere between Cary and uh, well, it used to be at a pub that was sort of reasonably local between all of us. We, uh, and in fact, the last one because since I've moved to Wake Forest and. Another guy moved even further north, away from the Cary town that he was living in. Uh, we found another place in Chapel Hill last time. So we just sort of pick a spot that's equal between us. That was the last meet.
1: Okay. And are you taking new members? Because I have someone in mind who might love that grumpy club. Are you taking new members to that group?
3: Well, the application process is very, very hard. They've got got to prove that they are very (laughs) thick-skinned. Okay.
1: Well, we can talk about that later. Okay, here we have another question or comment um, from one of our participants. My husband also had a right hemisphere stroke, and I am an SLP. He had to stop working as an engineer also. Uh, We like to play Jeopardy every day. And here is another one. Uh, would you please tell us some of the strategies, exercises, interventions regarding the neurological vision interventions? And that person says, thank you for sharing your stories.
3: Well, the, the, my, this lady that we, we were referred to actually by a PT, our first PT, because um, she really helped with my, my, she actually helped with my walking. The, the, you cannot underestimate the importance of your sight, Um um the damage that's happened from a stroke in my case you know with the left side particularly we
2: yeah, Perif- have you?
3: yeah peripheral uh, vision and so forth um we were referred to a, a neuro optometrist if that's the right term yeah. so she was a real you know she was a real doctor with um with a, with neurological background training um focusing on the eyes and she had me doing all sorts of exercises, singing songs while I was doing all sorts of laser pointer things.
2: All those wheels on the thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, all it sorts of. So it. many things. It was a full hour.
3: She even, every did, week. she even developed a pair of glasses I had to wear every so often, which had lights that would flash off at various times and these glasses. She was absolutely amazing.
1: That does sound amazing. And compared to your vision, and your perception before the stroke, how is it now?
3: I would, I would say it's one of the few things that is back to, all, do you know, mm-hmm. I, I, you know. there am I saying you never get all, everything back. Well, that's probably one thing that I would say. I, I was already wearing glasses for reading
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, beforehand. So um, it was becoming, um, And and I noticed when I was hitting the golf ball into the trees, I couldn't find it as often as I'd like to think I could. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think the writing was on the wall in terms of my general eyesight. But um, Mm -hmm. right now with my I mean, I've been wearing prism glasses, obviously, for a a fairly long time. But um, the the last uh, visit that I had with this lady, I actually she said, I'm going to tone down your prism. You've made a remarkable improvement. Your vision is significantly improved. So um, Mm -hmm. it's working very, very well long answer to your question again oh, oh
1: well that, no that's great so uh how long was your the actual therapy like when you were uh, visiting her for you know the hour long well, i think it, i think
2: it was 12 weeks 12 weeks okay 12
1: weeks of every week
2: and then after that it was like every three months maybe just for another checkup just to she'd do all these tests and things she and she, she and, and g- she
3: gave you lots of
2: homework too. So, i mean lots i had of lots of homework. homework i mean i, I had little signs all around the kitchen we had them all over the house <laughs> <laughs> all these little things that she gave us to stop him always looking to the wrong side because you're always looking right It it was told to make his vision change
1: it was amazing that is amazing well so inspirational I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that you have had um such great medical care um not only with your slps but your ot's pts doctors um and an optometrist. Um, and then also that you have been involved in so many groups. Can you tell us a little bit? We have about three more minutes. Can you tell us a little bit about why you choose to go to groups?
3: Well, they might that that, you know, I would say that probably other stroke survivors are my biggest inspiration. Uh, and I talk again in the book, um, which you need to get, by the way, <laughs> um, um, particularly, Again, I, I've been part of a, the Triangle Aphasia Project, which is a charity here that has at least twenty groups in that organisation, which are made up predominantly of left brain injuries. Um, so people with aphasia, particularly, and I find that those people give me even more inspiration because I think at least I've had my communication, you know. And this is the, this is the argument. One of the points that. Uh, did you know that the lady, that this professor lady that I've been associated with, that you, Jamila Minga, um, has done this documentary that's coming out onto on on PBS at some point, um, which is um, about right hemisphere disorder and and how it's a hidden diagnosis, because she says quite clearly that, it, particularly in the um, in the movie, um, that with the left brain injury, it's so overt, it's so clear that this person's got a communication disorder, that right brain um, tends to go unnoticed, it tends to be hidden, hence the term hidden diagnosis. Uh, And yet, as this documentary shows, relationships, unless you're particularly stupid or... um, um and and you know your your ability to communicate with people is just more than just being able to speak it's being able to interpret what things are said as well as how to say what you're trying to say when to say what you're trying to say so yes um so the group the 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 aphasia thing the the aphasia groups particularly for me are, are the ones that i love i like to be around those guys more because they have a much i feel they have a much more of an uphill battle than I. And when I see them struggling away and but but getting it out and seeing the progress that they've made, I think, wow, that's fantastic.
1: Well, it very makes me, yeah, that is it very makes inspirational. Me very happy. You know, it seems like some people with right hemisphere strokes, they they might not, because their speech is intact, you know, they might not get um or seek a full range of SLP services like like you. I think that does happen uh from time to time so um so good that you have and um i'm i'm being told we need to wrap up we could talk forever but again i so appreciate both of you um coming on and sharing your stories we really um uh we really 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 appreciate it i have another uh something in the chat that says to clarify triangle aphasia group and jamila minga is the person who um has created yeah, she, that documentary, she, she, I think, yeah, along with she's, someone she's else. She's the one right? that's
3: been working most on the right hemisphere, this RHD, hidden diagnosis, and has been doing a lot of research on it.
1: All right. So for anyone else who wants to learn more, um, she would be a yeah. great resource. At,
3: yeah, Jamila Minger at Duke University and um, Triangle. Triangle Aphasia Project, TAP.
1: Tap. Okay, great. Wonderful. All right. Well, again, thank you so much. And as a reminder, if you are joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says complete course before the end of the day today on your PD.com account. So wonderful. We really appreciate it and um, have a wonderful rest of your day today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You too.
0: Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.